try that again. Good morning. morning. (laughs) It's good to be here this morning. I hope you had a uh, a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know uh, our family had a great time uh, with family and friends a couple times uh, this past week, and it was just a a wonderful time to get together and and celebrate and be with one another. Um, On Thursday, uh, I remember I had to park in a friend's house that was around the corner because there were so many cars that were going to be at my house and my, my neighbor's house. And um, so at the end of the night, after everybody had left, I had gone to get my car and uh, parked it back in, in my driveway. And just remember, before I walked in, just reflecting on how blessed uh, we are, not just because, not because of anything material, but, be, but because of Christ, because of the gift that we have been given, that you know, no matter um, the circumstance that you might find yourself in, no matter the storm that you're in, we all have something that we can be grateful for, and that is the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made you know, on the cross. And that is truthfully what is motivating this new series. You know, every December, uh, we spend time speaking and sharing about the good news of Jesus' birth. We, we prepare and we get ready for Walk Through Bethlehem. Um, but honestly, a couple weeks ago, I was telling our leadership team that God has been stirring something in me about are we doing enough to actually celebrate this birth, to, to proclaim this birth, to, uh, to share the good news, not just at Walk Through Bethlehem, not just at this time of year, but throughout the year. Our, our theme for this year of 2019 has been renew, and I believe that God has uh, really done a renewal in us and, and certainly in me, and I've, I've seen it in you, but I think, I think where God has wanted to take us in 2020 is a place of, of revival. And uh, I was telling this to the elders uh, at a meeting the other night, and uh, I told them, I think this is, you know, we're going to kick off 2020, and we're going to be focused on, you know, uh, uh, about revive and how God wants to revive us and wants to revive our community and I love our elder body. Jerry P. just looked at me and he's like, why do we have to wait until 2020? And I said, you're right. So we're going to start right now. We're going to start right now talking about and focusing on revival and what that means. And the way that we're going to do that first as we celebrate this uh, time of Christmas is talk about go tell it on the mountain. And uh, before, we, before we dive into the message today and kick off this series, let's, uh, let's just give this time to the Lord, give our hearts to the Lord. And, and as we talked about last week, let us remember that we are called to pray in the Spirit at all times. And that as we, as we enter into God's presence, let us remember the significance of what that means. Father, we, we are humbled by you by the fact that you are so holy and so perfect, that you are God and you are our Father. God, we thank you that you choose us, that you choose to be in relationship and in connection with us, and we thank you that it is through your Son that that is made possible. God, here we are and we lay ourselves bare before you, God. We, we give you permission to confront us with our sin, confront us with those things that might separate us from you so that, so that we can be as close to you as possible. Draw us into your spirit. Draw us into your presence today. God, speak to us, not through my voice, but through your words, Lord. Let us hear you so loudly, so plainly, so clearly. God, that it brings transformation, that it changes us from the inside out. God, I pray for not just our church, not just our meeting time, but for churches around our community and around our nation, around this world, Lord, that your spirit would be poured out. That today would mark a moment, a movement of transformation, that your spirit 
God is just being lifted up and magnified and glorified. God, let your church, your church pursue you. God, empower us. Motivate us. God, move us to go out into our community, Lord, and and, and to share the good news that has transformed us, Lord. Let us be instruments of your glory, instruments of your grace, and of your good news. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was saying, you know, just I believe that God is calling us to a greater focus on the gospel. And um, this series, Go Tell It on the Mountain, is, is founded in, uh, you know, from this verse Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. I was uh, talking with Julie, our church secretary, this week, and just con- conversing with her over text message and email. And uh, she told me that once she knew the title of the series and today's message, that um, she couldn't stop singing the song. And so in our first service, we made sure that we sang uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain as one of our, our hymns in, in our uh, traditional service. But when you think about it, you know, one, I just have to brag on God for a little bit. So it never ceases to amaze me how God will always make sure that in my own quiet time, I am reading the things that align with what he's directing me to, to preach and what he's directing me to speak. Um, you know, I've known for a couple weeks that this is the direction that we were going to go, and this is what the title of his sermon was going to be. This is, where the, this is the core verse for the series. And wouldn't you know it, this week in my quiet time, Isaiah 52 pops up. And it was, you know, just in the, you know, I have a plan that's set in version, and it was just in that plan for this week that I would read Isaiah 52. And it's an amazing chapter. Honestly, you know, we, we talk about this verse quite frequently. You've probably heard it. You've heard me say it. But in the rest of the chapter, this stands out as very unique. Because what, you want, what we need to understand is at this point in Israel's history, the nation is struggling. The people are declining. Uh, the kings of Egypt and Assyria, they are attacking. They are on the war front. They are trying to expand their territory. Other nations are doing the same, and this is often at the expense of Israel. Because of Israel's consistent and, and cyclical just rebellion and idol worship, God is using this time of war to punish the nation of Israel. And they are in oppression from these other kings. And in fact, when you read through the first part of Isaiah 52, the, the message that you see is that the people are in dust and ashes. They're, they're, in, they're in mourning clothes. They've got, they've got ashes in their hair, and they are mourning about their situation. It says that they are weak, that they have been sold for nothing, that they had actually given themselves away for nothing. The ultimate indictment is that they have chosen to live in Egypt, that they have chosen to be oppressed by the Assyrians, and that the people have been taken away for nothing, and the people and God are being mocked. And in the midst of this, you know, description of what's happening in the nation of Israel and the condition of the people, Isaiah says this, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim to Zion, your God reigns. You see, the contrast is because God is telling his people that my people will know my name. He tells them in Isaiah 52, he says, shake off your dust. In fact, don't be clothed in ashes, but be clothed in splendor. To be clothed in strength. He says, shake off your chains and rise enthroned 
is what the message to God's people is. And so when we look at that, we absolutely understand the parallel in our lives because we know that before Christ, we were chained in sin. That our, our lives before him were headed to an eternity separate from God, punished into hell, a place of eternal destruction. But because of Christ, I know that those chains are broken. I can rise up. I can shake those chains off and I can rise enthroned as one of God's children. But what Isaiah is saying, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What we, what we must understand is that this good news of our salvation, the good news that our God reigns is not meant just for me. It is not meant just for you. Our neighbors need Jesus. I told you last week that I am desperate for God to use us to reach this community. Not because I want Kings Avenue glorified, not because I want to be glorified as your pastor, not because I want you to be glorified as this church, but I want God to be glorified. Because I know people, I have friends in this community that without Christ will spend eternity in hell. And I don't want that for them. God doesn't want that for them. And so I have to realize that it's my responsibility to go tell it on the mountain. It is my responsibility to share the truth of who Jesus is. And it's your responsibility. We all share this responsibility. Christ was called to do it, and he gives that same calling to us as his followers. So through this series over the next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the times that the angels came to proclaim the news of Jesus' birth. They spoke to four people. They spoke to to Mary, to Joseph, uh, the shepherds, and the wise men, specifically about the birth of Christ. And what we're going to look at in these interactions is, you know, there, there are some consistencies, of course, between them. But there are parts of each message that are unique. There are some things that they only said to Mary. There are some things that they only said to Joseph. Some things they only said to the shepherds. And some things they only said to the wise men. So what are those unique elements? And what do we need to make sure that when we go out to share the news of Christ, that we make sure that we're including all of this in our message? Because it's all about Christ. All of this is relevant and all of it is is part of the story of who he is. So today, we're going to start with looking at this interaction where Gabriel came and delivered the news to Mary. Find it in Luke chapter 1. And it's not in the back of your bulletin, but you should have received a full, um, just regular piece of paper that has uh, the notes from today as well. Uh, It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him a throne. I give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age And she, who is said to be uh, unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. She was pregnant with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. 
and the angel left her. So before we you know, dive too far in, I want to I explain why you find this interaction in Luke and not in Matthew. So Luke is a doctor, and he is writing to a Greek audience. So he's writing in Greek, and the people that are, he's writing to are Greek. Matthew was a tax collector. He was Jewish, and he was writing to a Jewish audience. The intent of both of these books, the intent of the Gospels, is to demonstrate that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. He is the one that all of the prophecies, more than 300 prophecies, were fulfilled in the body and man of Jesus Christ. If Matthew had given this interaction to his audience, the people would not have been convinced because they were looking for someone whose lineage was through a man. So if you look in Matthew's lineage that he provides, it goes through Joseph all the way actually directly to God. Luke, in the, in the lineage that he gives, it includes Mary because his audience was not necessarily concerned about what the Jews were concerned about there. But the, the main point that we need to see is the fact that this is not just about lineage. This is about a virgin birth. Now, Mary was likely a teenager. And it, when it says that she is betrothed or she is, you know, engaged, it's not like we would think engaged. Like in our time, if two people were engaged and they, you know, they, they called the engagement off, you know, just, it's between those two people, right? I mean, certainly there would be some family members that would be affected. But in, in, in their time, this would have required a divorce, it was binding. This betrothal was binding. And so if you, if you can imagine just a, a teenage girl getting a message from an angel, you're not married, you're going to be pregnant, and it's not your betrothed baby. Oh, and by the way, the law says that if you're pregnant before your marriage, your community can stone you. This is where Mary found herself. And yet the angel says to her, you are blessed and highly favored of God. But, but, but what you don't see Mary do is be concerned about that. What does she say in the end? It, whatever you're, you know, let it be unto me as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. But in all of this, we must realize the significance of the virgin birth. You see, God used the virgin birth to break a generational curse of sin. For 76 generations, man was cursed with sin. From Adam to Jesus is 77 generations and for 76 of them, sin was present. Because in the moment that Adam took the fruit, in the moment that he sinned, the Bible tells us that all of his descendants, including you and I, were corrupted by sin. We see this in Romans chapter 5. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man being Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged to anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, and, and even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as, Adam, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. So what does all of that say that we've said so far? It says that Adam sinned, and because he sinned, all of us are guilty of sin. Because of Adam, we are all guilty of sin. And it says that he is a pattern of the one to come. That is speaking about Christ. We'll talk next week about how Jesus is the second Adam. But the point is that where Paul says that the gift is not like the trespass. The trespass is Adam ate the fruit. All of us now have sin in our lives. The gift is what is given through Christ. 
Christ died, and because he died, that is the gift, and now I have life. Sin introduces me to death. Christ's death introduces me to life. Okay, and so that's, that's what Paul is, is explaining here. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? You see, it is through Jesus that God intervenes and breaks the generational curse of sin. Generation after generation after generation, sin was there. And God said it cannot be there anymore. And so for his son to be born, he had to be sinless. He had to be perfect because he knew that he would come and die. This wasn't just about a prophecy because there, you know, Isaiah did prophesy about a virgin birth, but this is not just meant to fulfill a prophecy. The virgin birth has purpose because Jesus could have no sin in him. And so God had to intervene because we all have to realize what is already inside of us because of what Adam did. In Galatians 5, it says the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, he is not just giving us a list of things that we need to avoid, although we should avoid these things. What Paul is saying is that because of the sin of Adam, these things are already in you. They are already there. Jealousy, rage, anger, wrath, sexual immorality, it's all there. You don't believe me? Just let someone cut you off in traffic. Right? And then all of a sudden you're you're thinking things, maybe even saying things that you're like, oh, that's not Christ-like. At least I hope that's how you react. (laughs) But it's already in you. Waiting to be released by your surrender to your flesh. Jesus had to come because something had to be done. Because he had to break this generational curse of sin. It's in me. I want it out of me. God wants it out of me. So what does he do? He sends Jesus to this world. And it is through Christ, when I surrender to the Spirit, that I can exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It is only when I am surrendered to him that I can exhibit these fruits that are from the Spirit. God, the message that the angel is delivering to Mary is your son will break the generational curse of sin. And through him, people will have the opportunity to have life. He says that his kingdom will reign forever. There will be no end. He's, he's alluding to this message for Mary. Jesus helps us understand this a little bit more in John chapter 3. This is where Nicodemus, the Pharisee, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. It's, I love this interaction because Nicodemus, he comes to Christ dead of night. He doesn't want people to know that he's going to Jesus because he's a Pharisee. He's supposed to be against Christ. But he says to Jesus at the beginning of John chapter 3, basically he says, I've watched you. I can see that something is different. I know that the things that you do, you could not do unless you were from God. And that's basically like he just kind of says that to Christ. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you will never see the kingdom of God unless you have been born again. And Nicodemus, 
in his, in his like fleshly mind, trying to think literally, he says, well, how can I reenter my mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, it's, it's, it's not that. He says, you have to be born of the flesh, you have to be born of the water and of the spirit. And I think what Jesus is doing, he's actually providing us a picture of his own birth. You see, he was born of the water. Mary gave birth to Christ. Jesus, when he was born, 100% flesh and bone. Baby boy, grow, growing into a man. But the angel tells Mary that the way that she would become pregnant was when the spirit overshadowed her. And God literally takes a part of himself and deposits it into her. And that that, that baby boy would not just be 100% man, but would be 100% God. You see, Jesus was born of the water and of the spirit because the spirit is what impregnated Mary. Do I understand all of this? No. We talked last week about the mystery of God, and sometimes we have to steward that mystery. You know what? We're not meant to understand everything. If we were, we wouldn't need faith, right? The Bible tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, not by grace through understanding. And so on some of these things, we need to have some faith to to really be able to walk in this truth. But in the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, and that he was born you know, through Mary, actually fulfills a prophecy that God himself gave in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, uh, the Adam and Eve had just sinned, and God is doling out punishment. He's speaking to uh, the devil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. You look at this, and like I said, Adam and Eve had already eaten the fruit, They had sown fig leaves. They had hidden. God had come to the garden. He had said, you know, where are you? They came and acknowledged where they were. And God is is handing out punishment. And he's speaking to the serpent. What is important to note is he says that there will be enmity. There will be strife. There will be conflict between the devil and the offspring, not of Adam, but of Eve, of the woman. So we see this because, and what we recognize in that is that God is talking about Jesus. This is a prophecy about Christ. He says to the serpent, you will strike his heel. That is the crucifixion. He will crush your head. That started at the resurrection and will finish when the book of Revelation is complete and Jesus throws the devil into hell forever. You see, through this, God is fulfilling his own prophecy. And what I love about it, this is Genesis 3.15. This is like 12 verses after sin. Like God had already illustrated his plan for salvation moments after sin entered the world. What a beautiful picture of his grace. And what we need to realize today, so through all of this, so again, the message that the angel is delivering to Mary, your son will break the generational curse of sin. That through him, salvation will, be, will enter the world. But also he highlights a couple times that he will be, that Jesus will be the son of the most high, that he will be son of God. And so what I want to do for the, you know, the next several minutes is we're going to be talking about what it says in Scripture about who God is. Because Jesus is God. Now, in the early church, some things that, you know, there, there was actually a heresy that came out that said that, you know, God created Christ, that he was subordinate to, to, to that Jesus was subordinate to God. That, that is, we need to make sure that we understand that that is not the case. Even though we refer to Jesus as the Son of God, he was 100% God. John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning, 
was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They are equal parts of the Trinity. Again, a mystery that we may not understand fully, but we understand and accept is true based off of what, we, we, what God has revealed to us. So as we go through these scriptures, we're going to look at a number of different scriptures, mainly because I don't want you to hear my opinion of who God is. I want you to know what his word says he is. Okay, so first we see that God is holy, he is perfect, and he is sinless. In 1 John 1, it says, this is a message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. I love that it says that God is light, not that he is in light. That God is light. In him there is no darkness. There is no sin. There is no you know, shadow of, 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 of darkness that is unholy. God is holy. He is perfect. In Psalm 18, it says, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who refuge in him. His way is perfect. His word is flawless. So what that tells me is that when I'm concerned about the direction of my life, when I am concerned about the circumstance that I might find myself in, if I am pursuing the will of God, and I am trusting him to direct me according to that will and to see his will done in my life, his will is perfect. His way is perfect. And I know that it will work out according to his will, that his word is flawless. I can have confidence because my God is God, that he is holy and perfect. In Deuteronomy, it says, he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Can we, can we take encouragement in the fact that he is the rock, that his works, are, his works are perfect, that his ways are just, that we can trust in this direction, that he is upright and just. And then in Hebrews 4, we're talking about Christ specifically. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You know, as, as you read through this section in Hebrews, it illustrates this beautiful picture of what Christ did for us. It says that as our high priest, he didn't enter into a holy of holies or a temple that was made by man. He didn't enter, enter into one that was a replica of what was in heaven. He actually entered into the throne room of God. And he offered himself as a sacrifice. Why? Because he was holy, because he, he was perfect, because he was sinless. It was only because of those things that he was able to do that. So in the fact that God is holy, he is perfect, he is sinless. Jesus, therefore, is holy, he is perfect, he is sinless. And because of that, he is able to be offered as a sacrifice for our sin. Next, we see that God is faithful. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. A thousand generations. We'll see in a moment that it says forever. Second Timothy 2, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. How many times have we wavered? Like, just think about your own walk with God. Think about where you have been in your life. Have you always 
sought God and his kingdom first? Have you always pursued him above everything else? Have you always walked blamelessly? Have you always walked the narrow path? Are there times where you have strayed? Are there times where you have turned your back on God? Are there times where you, know, you, you have begun to just question In those moments when we are faithless, in those moments when we deny ourselves, God cannot and will not deny himself. He is true to his nature. The best picture of this is Peter walking on the water. God, you know, Christ, he he calls Peter out of the boat. Peter's walking on the water. Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus. In that moment, faithless. Takes his eyes off of Christ, sees the circumstance, and what does he begin to do? He begins to sink. What is the first word that comes out of Peter's mouth? Jesus. And he just cries out, Jesus. And Jesus, true to himself, reaches down. And it says that in that moment, they were where they were de- destined to be. You see, God cannot deny himself. And what that tells me is that in those moments when I might have strayed, when I've fallen off that, that narrow road, when I have chosen to seek other things instead of God, and I come to my senses when I realize and I come to him and I repent, that he will be true to himself. He is faithful to me. He will forgive me. He will bring me back to himself. His word says that when I draw near to him, he will draw near to me. In Psalm 119, it says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. First John, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is an interesting um, description of Christ. That he is faithful and he is just. And that in that same sentence, in that same breath, we talk about justice and forgiveness. That, that forgiveness was given to me. The judgment was given to Christ. You see that? Like that, that demonstrates God's faithfulness. That, that there still had to be punishment for sin. That even though I am confessing something that I have done, The justice is meted out on Christ. The forgiveness and righteousness is given to me. And I am made his child. It is because he is faithful. God cannot deny who he is. This is part of his nature. This is part of Christ's nature. This is what the angel is proclaiming to Mary. This is who your son is going to be. Next is immutable and unchanging. And this is one of the things that I just, I marvel at. Truthfully, I do. In James 1, it says, every good, and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I was telling the, our people in the first service, have you ever done one of those um, like pictures where it says, you know, look at the two pictures and identify the, the changes between them? And uh, whoever does these things are cruel. And... You know, I, I, I hate them, not because I'm, I mean, I'm not great at them, but I also, I get, I get in my own head. I'm like, well, is that just an inkblot? Is that an error in how it was printed? But if we look at God, if we examine him today, you know what we're going to find? That he is the same God that spoke the universe into existence. That the God that speaks to me is the one that breathed into Adam. That the God that told Noah to build the ark is the same one that tells me, John, go talk to your neighbor about who I am. That the God that, that, that held David, that, that brought David through all of the trials that David went through is the same God that walks with me. 
He is unchanging. There is no shadow of variation or change. In Hebrews 13, it says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it lets me know that when God brought them through and he brought me through in my past, he's going to bring me through in my future. And it gives me the hope that when someone else comes to me and they say to me or they say to you, I'm struggling with this or you know, I don't know what to do, we can say with confidence, go to Christ. Because he is the same. And the same way that he loves you will be the same way that he loves them. We see this demonstrated in Hebrews 6. It says, so when God desired to show uh, a more convincing more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, what this is saying is that God decided to show the unchangeable nature of who he is. I love that it says the unchangeable character of his purpose. That means not only is God unchanging, but his purpose is unchanging. God created Adam and Eve. The purpose of that creation was for them to worship him, was for them to be in relationship with him. That means that when God created me, that his purpose is unchanged, that he created me to be in relationship with me, to, to, to have relationship and for me to worship him that his purpose of love, his nature of love is unchanged. His character remains the same. And he demonstrates that with an oath made in the body of Jesus Christ. It says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into an inner place behind the curtain. Talking about the Holy of Holies where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. He went before us on our behalf, for us, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What, that's, what that means, again, alluding to what I said before, that Jesus didn't enter into some earthly temple to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. He entered into the throne of God, which the temple was mirrored after, And he offered himself as the sacrifice. Not some other animal. Himself as that sacrifice. He is our forerunner. He ran before us and for us to offer that sacrifice so that we may have life. Because God's character is unchanging. His purpose is unchanging. He wants to be in relationship and connection with us. We see that God is gracious and compassionate. And Christ is gracious gracious and compassionate. In 2 Peter 3, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, hear hear me right now. This is a verse that we can hold on to in hope. What that says to me is that it is not God's will for anyone to go to hell. So first, when someone says, why does God send people to hell? God does not send anyone to hell. It's not his choice that they go there. It's their choice 
that they reject the gift of his salvation. Because God, in his heart, his character is unchanging. He has always wanted to spend eternity with his people. And so because of that, he sent his son, because it's his will that no one should perish, but everyone should come to repentance. And so he made it possible, we must choose to surrender. But what a great hope that we have. So when someone comes and you interact with someone You don't have to question, does God want to save them? Absolutely, God wants to save them. God wants them with with him in heaven. In Psalm 116, it says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. Micah says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning, Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you celebrate that fact with me this morning? That our sins have been cast into the depths of the sea? That our iniquities have been tread under God's feet? That he has, set, he, he's, he has destroyed the power of those chains, of that sin that was already inside of us because of our ancestor Adam? That because of Christ, I can, I, can, I can live differently. I can actually have life and have it to the full and have it forever. We celebrate these things. And lastly, the, the angel tells Mary that her son would be named Jesus. This is so important. Because Jesus, the word Jesus, it means Messiah. It means Savior. And so the the angel is saying to Mary, your son will break the generational curse of sin. Your son will be the son of the most high. He will be the son of God. He will be perfect. He will be holy. He will be sinless. He will be all of these things. And he will be the savior. He will be the Messiah. The thing is, we must surrender. Jesus' name encapsulates his purpose. It, It demonstrates why he came. He came to save came to seek and to save that which was lost. He said in, in Matthew chapter 9 that, you know, as Jesus was looking on the crowds of people, what, what did he have on them? He had compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost and they didn't even know it. Our community is lost and they don't know it. And like Christ, we must have compassion It's a scary prayer, but my prayer is that God would give us his eyes. That when you see your family member, when you see your next door neighbor, when you see your coworker who does not know Jesus, I want you to be so burdened with their salvation that you can't sleep. I want you to see them as as a child of God that is lost in need of a shepherd, in need of the good news. I want you to be so motivated that you cannot do anything but go tell it on the mountain. I want your feet to be beautiful. I believe God wants our feet to be beautiful. When Jesus was sending his disciples out, he says to them, but I whisper to you in the shadows, I want you to shout from the rooftops. For too often and for too long, we have taken the things that we hear God whisper to us in the shadows. 
in our quiet times, in our own Bible reading, maybe even something that we hear in a sermon. We have taken it as a secret to be held rather than good news, good news to be proclaimed. Jesus said, what I have told you in the shadows, you shout, shout from the rooftops. There is no one, no one, no one that is excluded from the good news of Jesus' birth. So when we think about our responsibility, our responsibility is like Mary's. Mary was blessed and favored by God, and in that blessing was given a burden. A burden of being a teenage girl before marriage, pregnant, with a baby that was not her fiancé's. But what did she say to the angel? Let it be unto me as you have said. Did she worry about anything? Like the one question that she asked the angel, how is it possible that I'm going to be pregnant because I'm a virgin? That's the one question that she asked. She didn't say, well, what about this or what about that? What about my parents? What about Joseph's parents? What if Joseph divorces me? She doesn't say any of that. She says, let it be unto me as you have said. So we have been given good news. Because of Jesus, we are blessed and favored by God. With that comes a burden. A burden that if we choose not to share the gospel. You know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10? He says, if you refuse to, to, to proclaim my truth, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before God. That's a burden that we carry, a responsibility that we carry. We must go out. Our feet must be beautiful. We must go out and share the good news. We must go tell it on the mountain. We must understand it and realize that Jesus came to save. He came to break the curse of sin. That he is the son of God. He is the son of the most high. That he is holy. He is perfect. He is sinless. He is faithful. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. That he has always loved you. He has always loved me. He has always loved every single person. I have two questions for you. My first question is, have you accepted this good news? I can't, I can't stand up here with any kind of credibility and deliver this message without asking you and giving you the opportunity to respond to Christ. Jesus says in Revelation 3 that he stands at the door and knocks, but only we can let him in. If you have never let him in, if you have never received the gift of salvation, listen, today is the day. Do not wait another second. Let him in. Let him come in and change you. And then my next question is, for those that have received that gift, who are you going to share the message with? Who are you going to tell about Jesus? What are you going to tell him? How are you going to tell him the difference that he made in your life? You know, I've noticed a, a few things on, on Facebook this week and where God has, has really demonstrated his power. And I love how people are proclaiming that God has, has done that. 
I would challenge you to take it not to a place of social media, but to a place of, of human and personal interaction. To share with someone, listen, God's done amazing things in, in, in my life and in, in the lives of my wife, in my children, in the lives of my friends. Your testimony, your story, what God has done for you, no one can take that from you. No one can take that from you. Tell someone this week about who Christ is, about the curse, the generational curse that he broke in your life, that because of him you can live differently, you can have life. Let's pray. Father, I come to you today, and God, I just give you glory. I thank you for your son. that your purpose is unchanging, that it has always been motivated toward relationship and connection with us, that you created us to worship you, God. Forgive us for the times that we have failed to do that. Forgive us for being faithless. Forgive us for denying ourselves, for denying you, for, for walking a different path, for seeking a different method of gratification or fulfillment, God. Forgive us, Lord or living by our flesh instead of walking in your spirit. God, if there is anyone here today, Lord, I would pray that that if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that here and now they would choose God to pursue you, that they would choose to come forward, that they they would lay their life down, they would receive you as their savior, this amazing gift that has been given. God, for the rest of us, help us to be convicted. God, break us with the weight of what you see in people. Let us love them as you love them. Let us feel the weight of your love towards them. And let that love stir inside of us not just a momentary or fleeting desire to reach them, God, but one that cannot be quenched, that we pray and we seek you for them, that we seek them for you, God, that we go to them, that we speak to them about you, that we talk to them, God. Burden us with the good news, Lord. God, we give you glory and we worship you. Help us, Father, to walk and the truth of what you are teaching. In Jesus' name, amen.